Chapter 28 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Frances Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 28 Outbreak of War. Notwithstanding the imminence of a bloody issue between South and North in the United States, Miss Dix, as has been seen, kept on steadily at her accustomed work. The election to the presidency of Abraham Lincoln would, she was entirely persuaded, precipitate war. For years she had been brought into close personal contact with the majority of the powerful leaders of public opinion in the South, and understood their ideas and spirit as did few northern people. Wholly devoted to her self-chosen work, and feeling that a word from her on the slavery question would, through vast sections of the country, destroy in an instant her power to do anything farther for the insane, she had for years maintained a rigid silence on the whole issue. It was an instance of the inevitable sacrifice of one cause of humanity for another. As has been already said, she was under bonds to hold her peace, bonds not of self-interest, but of merciful compassion. Work, constant work, was now her refuge from distressful thought about her country. Thus, February 1861, we find her writing from Illinois to her friend Miss Heath, quote, I thank God, dear Annie, I have such full uses for time now, for the state of our beloved country, otherwise would crush my heart and life. I was never so unhappy but once before, and that grief was more selfish, perhaps, viz. when the 12,225,000 acre bill was killed by a poor base man in power." It will readily be remembered by the reader that on the sudden and startling call of President Lincoln for the 75,000 volunteer troops to defend Washington, Massachusetts was the first to respond with two regiments, the 6th and 8th. The possibility of such instantaneous promptitude had been due to the ardor and foresight of Governor John A. Andrew who mainly of his own personal initiative had provided the needful accoutrements and ammunition. The regiment the first to leave Massachusetts got safely through to Baltimore, where, in marching through the streets to the Washington Station, it was assailed by a furious mob, and a number of its soldiers were massacred. The main body, however, made its way across the city, boarded the train, and reached the national capital the same evening. At once, the secession element in Baltimore gained the upper hand, and before the following morning, parties were sent out to burn the railroad bridges between the city and Philadelphia. Two of these bridges, each a mile or more in length, Thus was railway communication cut off between Washington and the North, 
and the possibility of holding the national capital, surrounded as it was by a fiercely hostile population, seriously imperiled. Everything depended on the rapidity with which troops could be thrown into the city. To effect this by rail, farther than to the north bank of the Susquehanna River, was now an impossibility. But from this point, water communication could be had by way of the Susquehanna and of Chesapeake Bay to Annapolis, Maryland, from whence it was a march of scarcely twenty miles to Washington. Fortunately, the president of the Philadelphia and Baltimore Railroad, Samuel M. Felton, was a man capable of taking in the full peril of the situation. Instantly seizing the steamboats on the river, he collected them on the north shore, provisioned and coaled them, and had all in readiness for a start as soon as the arrival on the following day of the second contingent of the Massachusetts troop under General Benjamin F. Butler. Thus, by a masterly move, was the flank of infuriated Maryland turned, and not improbably, Washington saved. The peculiar part played by Miss Dix and the preparations instituted to meet this critical juncture is known to but few, though it was a part always recognized with gratitude and admiration by President Felton. Indeed, in a letter to the writer of this biography, he states that he again and again besought Miss Dix to permit him to make known how much the country owed to her, and that she had always given a point-blank refusal to have any use made of her name. Years later, however, President Felton wrote out on his own responsibility a full narrative of the episode. It furnishes one more example of Miss Dix's practical grasp of an emergency and of her singular power of impressing her convictions on others. Extracts from President Felton's personal letter run as follows. Quote, Philadelphia, 1026 Walnut Street, May 8, 1888. Dear Mr. Tiffany, I send you the enclosed extract from a paper which I prepared some twenty years ago at the request of Mr. Sibley, then librarian of Harvard University, detailing the part which I took in the beginning of the War of the Rebellion. In that, are my recollections of Miss Dix showing the part she took in those early days. Early in the year 1861, Miss Dix, the philanthropist, came into my office on a Saturday afternoon. I had known her for some years as one engaged in alleviating the sufferings of the afflicted. Her occupation in building hospitals had brought her into contact with the prominent men south. She had become familiar with the structure of Southern society and also with the working of its political machinery. She stated to me that she had an important communication to make to me personally. 
I listened attentively to what she had to say for more than an hour. She put in a tangible and reliable shape by the facts she related what before I had heard in numerous and detached parcels. The sum of it all was that there was then an extensive and organized conspiracy through the South to seize upon Washington, with its archives and records, and then declare the Southern Confederacy de facto the government of the United States. At the same time, they were to cut off all means of communication between Washington and the North, East, and West and thus prevent the transportation of troops to wrest the capital from the hands of the insurgents. Mr. Lincoln's inauguration was thus to be prevented, or his life was to fall a sacrifice. In fact, she said troops were then drilling on the line of our own road, the Washington and Annapolis line, and other lines of railroad. The men drilled were to obey the commands of their leaders, and the leaders were banded together to capture Washington. So profound was the impression produced on the mind of President Felton by this interview as to lead to the immediate inception of measures which revealed the full extent of the peril of which Miss Dix had given him such startling information. Detectives were hired, who managed to enlist as volunteers in the various squads of men secretly drilling along the lines of railroad from Harrisburg and from Philadelphia to Baltimore and Washington, and who was thus became at home in their schemes. That it was the intention to assassinate Abraham Lincoln on his way to the capital to be inaugurated as president became increasingly clear to mr felton thence the masterly move by which he averted this appalling danger and secretly smuggled the president-elect through to washington certainly it is a noteworthy fact that in the days when the wits of most men were utterly at sea the keen insight and military decision of mind of a woman should have lighted on the precise point where the greatest peril to the nation lay, and that the power of the warning she gave should have been so impressive as to have led to the decisive measures through which in all probability the name and fame of Abraham Lincoln were preserved to the country, and not unlikely Washington itself saved. It so happened that at the time of the wild excitement which broke out as soon as it was known that the 6th Massachusetts was on its way from Boston to Washington, that other regiments from various states were to follow, Miss Dix was with her old friends, Dr. and Mrs. Buttolph, at the Trenton Asylum, resting there from a recent arduous tour through the West. Taking in the situation in an instant, she felt that Washington, where camp disease and wounded men would soon be the order of the day, was now her post of duty. Accordingly, only three hours after the massacre in Baltimore, and while all was still frightful tumult, she reached that city, 
and with great difficulty making her way through the thronging streets, managed to board the last train that was permitted to leave for Washington. The call for volunteers had brought her, as a volunteer, to report for nursing duties. A hurried line from her to her friend Miss Heath tells the story. Quote, Washington, D.C., April 20th, 1861. Dear Annie, Yesterday I followed in the train three hours after the tumult in Baltimore. It was not easy getting across the city, but I did not choose to turn back, and so I reached my place of destination. I think my duty lies near military hospitals for the present. This need not be announced. I have reported myself and some nurses for free services at the War Department and to the Surgeon General, Thus, through the promptitude with which she was first on the ground, had Miss Dix manifested her old-time spirit. Perfectly naturally, then, did it come about that she should at once be appointed superintendent of women nurses to select and assign women nurses to general or permanent military hospitals, they not to be employed in such hospitals without her sanction and approval, except in cases of urgent need. Orders to this effect were at once issued by Simon Cameron, Secretary of War, and D. C. Wood, Acting Surgeon General. The literal meaning, however, of such a commission as had thus been hurriedly bestowed on Miss Dix, applying as it did to the women nurses of the military hospitals of the whole United States not in actual rebellion, was one which, in those early days of the war, no one so much as began to take in. A fatal delusion possessed the mind of the North that in two or three months at most the war would be over. Indeed, thousands severely blamed the President for ordering out such a host of three months' men. At any rate, the 75,000 volunteer troops would soon sweep everything before their irresistible mass and valor that a four years' deadly struggle confronted the nation, that before it was settled more than a million of men would be arrayed on either side, this no imagination was prophetic enough to grasp. Such a commission, then, as the march of events was before long to prove, involved a sheer practical impossibility. It implied not a single-handed woman, nearly sixty years old and shattered in health, but immense organized departments at twenty different centers. Up to the time of the Civil War, the United States had maintained an army of but from twenty thousand to twenty-five thousand men. Except in the exceptional case of the Mexican War, no mind in the country had ever coped with the problem of dealing with the medical care of forces larger than those of the few regiments quartered in widely distant parts of the Union. To help through non-military volunteer service, 
to meet the dire demand now suddenly sprung on the nation, the men and women of the North were working night and day, pouring out unstintedly treasures of money and accumulating and forwarding enormous stores of clothing, bandages, and delicate foods for the sick and wounded in the hospitals. What agency, then, should prove itself competent to handle and promptly distribute these vast stores? No agency, it was soon found out, short of powerful organizations like the Sanitary Commission, and later on the Christian Commission, organizations with immense sums of money at their disposal, storehouses at a hundred different points, trains of army wagons in the field, department divisions presided over by able administrative minds with a little army of efficient subordinates. Women nurses, moreover, were volunteering by the thousands, the majority of them without the experience or health to fit them for such arduous service. Who should pass on their qualifications? Who station, superintend, and train them? Now, under the atlas weight of cares and responsibilities so suddenly thrust on Miss Dix, the very qualifications which had so preeminently fitted her for the previous sphere in which she had wrought such miracles of success began to tell against her she was nearly sixty years old and with a constitution sapped with malaria overwork and pulmonary weakness she had for years been a lonely and single-handed worker planning her own projects keeping her own counsel and pressing on unhampered by the need of consulting others toward her self-chosen goal in all this her towering idealism and thirst after perfection of organization and discipline had proved the precise qualities needed nowhere else in the world is there demanded such wise selection of officials such sleepless vigilance and such exercise of perpetual self-control as in a well-ordered insane asylum but in war especially in a war precipitately entered on by a raw and inexperienced people all such perfection of organization and discipline is out of the question if a good field hospital cannot be had the best must be made of a bad one if a skillful surgeon is not on hand then an incompetent one must hack away after his own butcher fashion if selfish and greedy attendants or physicians will eat up and drink up the supplies of delicacies and wines for the sick, then enough more must be supplied to give the sick the fag end of a chance. It is useless to try to idealize war. While it calls out all that is heroic and consecrated in one class of men, it calls out all that is selfish and base in another. All this, however, Miss Dix could not bring herself to endure. Ready to live on a crust and to sacrifice herself without stint, 
her whole soul was on fire at the spectacles of incompetence and callous indifference she was daily doomed to witness. She became overwrought and lost the requisite self-control. That pathetic sympathy with human suffering which had been the mainspring of her long and wonderful philanthropic career now, when she was brought face to face with such massive misery she could not relieve, served only to unnerve her. Inevitably, then, she became involved in sharp altercations with prominent medical officials and with regimental surgeons. She tried to stand over the sick and wounded soldiers as the avenging angel of their wrongs. Many and many an abuse did she ferret out and get redressed. Still, it is the clear opinion of her best and most judicious friends that she pitched her demands impracticably high, and failed to take due account of such poor material as average human nature, and so to work with it to the best advantage." she tried to insist on her woman nurses being at least thirty years old and to establish standards of pure consecration to duty which were out of the range of any but a few exceptional natures like her own moreover to meet the constant inpouring into washington of hundreds of tons of hospital supplies she had no adequate provision of storehouses nor of the needful machinery of distribution. The lone worker could not change her nature. She tried to do everything herself, and the feat before long became an impossibility. At length she came to recognize this, again and again, exclaiming in her distress, This is not the work I would have my life judged by. Still partially, at least, her life will have to be judged by this work, the life of a woman of nearly sixty, broken by the strain of years, upon whom had suddenly devolved an entirely new burden of responsibilities too great for any single mind to cope with. And the verdict will have to be that, while in personal devotion no portion of her career surpassed this, Still in wisdom and practical efficiency, it was distinctly inferior to her work in her own great sphere. Of its consecration of purpose, there can be no question. Through the four long years of the war, she never took a day's furlough. Untiringly did she remain at her post, organizing bands of nurses, forwarding supplies, inspecting hospitals, and in many a case of neglect and abuse, making her name a salutary terror. Especially in the early days of the war, before the sanitary and Christian commissions assumed their later immense proportions, her labors proved the means of relieving a large amount of suffering and saving many a valuable life. From the outset, her reputation and wide range of acquaintance had rallied to her side many of the most efficient nurses in the land, 
while the trust reposed in her by humane and patriotic minds had led to their being placed at her disposal immense stores of invaluable supplies. No doubt, farther, through the very height of the demand she made for absolute devotion to the cause of the soldier, and the fiery zeal with which she joined battle with all that fell below the mark, she helped to raise the standard. This unquestionably made her very unpopular with many, to which she would no doubt have replied, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. In dealing with the question of popularity, especially in democratic America, where this especial virtue outranks faith, hope, and charity, it is always hard to hold the balance of praise or blame strictly even. What seems to have been the fault of Miss Dix's administration of her responsible office, namely an overwrought zeal precipitating her at times into intemperate action, and thus impairing that singular balance of faculties through which her previous successes had been achieved, has perhaps been sufficiently dwelt on. In summary, however, of the impression left by her at this period of her career on minds kindred to her own and absolute devotion to duty, no higher testimonial can be offered than in the following extract from a letter of one whose services to the sick and wounded in the war won the admiration of all, Dr. Caroline A. Burghardt. Quote, she was, writes Dr. Burghardt, a very retiring, sensitive woman, yet brave and bold as a lion to do battle for the right and for justice. She was very unpopular in the war with surgeons, nurses, and any others who failed to do their whole duty, and they disliked to see her appear, as she was sure to do if needed. She was one who found no time to make herself famous with pen and paper, but a hard, earnest worker, living in the most severely simple manner, often having to be reminded that she needed food. To those of us who were privileged to know her, her memory is and ever will be very dear. Every day recalls some of her noble acts of kindness and self-sacrifice to mind. She seemed to me to lead a dual life, one for the outside world, the other for her trusted, tried friends. One massive character was there, however, in Washington, the great war secretary, Edwin M. Stanton, on whom no outcry of unpopularity against Miss Dix could produce any effect. Accustomed himself to do his duty at all risks, unpopularity reaped in doing it was in his eyes a commendation of fidelity rather than a reproach. So high was his sense of the country's indebtedness to the woman, who had been first on the ground and was last to quit the post of duty, that at the close of war he appealed to her to know in what shape it would be most agreeable to her to have her services officially recognized, 
a great public meeting presided over by the highest officials, or a vote of money from Congress were proposed. These mystics absolutely declined. What then would she like? was asked. The flags of my country, she replied, never deeming that her request would be granted. A beautiful pair of the national colors were specially directed by government to be made for her, and the following order was issued from the War Department. Quote, War Department, Washington City, December 3, 1866. Order in relation to the services of mystics. In token and acknowledgment of the inestimable services rendered by Miss Dorothea L. Dix for the care, succor, and relief of the sick and wounded soldiers of the United States on the battlefield, in camps and hospitals during the recent war, and of her benevolent and diligent labors and devoted efforts to whatever might contribute to their comfort and welfare, it is ordered that a stand of arms of the United States national colors be presented to Miss Dix. Edwin M. Stanton, Secretary of War. End quote. January 14, 1867 the execution of the above order was communicated in the ensuing letter. Quote, War Department, Adjutant General's Office, Washington, January 14, 1867. Miss D. L. Dix, Number 2 Pearl Street, Boston, Mass. My dear Miss Dix, I have the pleasure of sending by express this day in obedience to an order of Mr. Stanton, Secretary of War, a box containing a stand of the United States colors presented to you by the Secretary. I trust they will arrive safely. With great respect, your obedient servant, E. D. Townsend. End quote. To these communications, Miss Dix made reply, to General E. D. Townsend, quote, Albany, New York, January 25, 1867. Dear Sir, I am just in receipt of your letter of the 14th, and acknowledge with the deep emotion of a patriotic heart my sense of the honor conferred by the presentation through you from the Secretary of War of a stand of the United States Colors. No greater distinction could have been conferred on me, and the value of this gift is greatly enhanced by the quiet manner in which it is bestowed. Respectfully, D. L. Dix. To Honorable Edwin M. Stanton. Quote, Albany, New York, January 25, 1867. Sir, I beg to express my sense of the honorable distinction conferred on me by the Secretary of War in the presentation of a stand of United States colors received by order through Assistant Adjutant General Townsend. No more precious gift could have been bestowed, and no possession will be so prized while life remains to love and serve my country. 
very respectfully and with well-grounded esteem, D. L. Dix, end quote. These beautiful flags were bequeathed by Miss Dix to Harvard College, where, in the noble memorial hall dedicated to the sons of Harvard who died for their country in the war for the maintenance of the Union, they today hang, suspended over the main portal. End of chapter 28